with a letter of their alphabet. So do you remember what they were? We started with Aleph, and then Bet, or Beth, then Gimel, then Dalith, Hey, last week was Vav, this week is Zion, not Z-I-O-N, but Z-A-Y-N, Zion. So we're in the seventh letter, and this particular theme, if you remember Aleph, the first one was happiness, Beit was purity, Gimel was counsel, Dalith was strength, Hey was growth, Vav was freedom, and Zion is comfort. Comfort will be the main theme this morning. Now, I don't know what you know about the Hebrew Bible, but it's, their Bible is different than ours. You know it's probably just the Old, and you probably know it's just the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament because they believe they're still under the law, under the Old Covenant. But this is an interesting little touristy thing I picked up in, in the Christian quarter in Jerusalem, one of our trips over there. I don't remember which one it is. But it is something that the Hebrews don't have. It's a Hebrew version of the New Covenant, the New Testament as we know it, Matthew through Revelation, in parallel of the Hebrew and the English. Now, they keep to form with the Hebrew because it starts in the back with page one and goes to the front to the end. And so it starts in the front, and Hebrew is read from right to left instead of left to right. And their Old Testament Bible, this, this was what I would call the fourth part of their their Bible that they don't currently hold on to, but one day will. But the first three parts of their Bible, or all three parts of their Hebrew scriptures, are broken up into three things. The first is the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible that we know. It's the books of law, the books of Moses. And, and so that's the Torah. Then the middle set of books is called Nevi'im, and that is the prophets. That's all the Old Testament prophets, save Daniel, which is in the next section. And a few of the historical books, First and Second Kings and some of the others. And then the, third, and, that, and then the third part is where Psalms resides in their Bible, and it's called the Kedavim. And that Kedavim is, is known as the uh, Hagiographa. I had to remember the word. Hagiographa, it means sacred writings. So the third part that the Psalms reside in in the Hebrew Bible is part of the sacred writings. It has Psalms, Proverbs, Esther, Ruth, First uh, and Second Chronicles, and some of the others. It's the sacred writings. So we're in Psalms. So if you would turn in your copy of the Scripture, of God, a copy of God's Word, to Psalm 119. We're going to be starting in verse 49 and going through 46. When you have found that, if you would stand to your feet in honor of God's Word as I read the Scriptures. And God said through the psalmist, Remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. Lord, I remember your judgments from long ago and find comfort. Rage seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. Your statutes are the theme of my song during my earthly life. Yahweh, I remember your name in the night, and I obey your instruction. This is my practice. I obey your precepts. Thank you. You may be seated. 
The Bible and our study of it is really, really very contextual. And this, this passage is no different. If you have watched our Catalyst Online series, uh, Bible Study Principles that Chase Campbell, our pastor, uh, sorry to say senior adults, college adults and, and uh, young adults, uh, he taught a series called Bible Study Principles. The very, study, very first principle that he teaches is called Traveling Direction. It's called traveling direction because he draws a diagram that's kind of a half of a, or actually it's a whole triangle with, with a, a dotted line, but it means that in our study of the Bible, the principle to be used as first and foremost is you begin with context. In other words, don't begin with our context, but context of the first century reader. Who was the person this was written to that would be hearing it? You must begin with that text and then move to the context of it. So you read the text, then you read it for context, and then and only then can you move to application in our context. Because the principle is, if you do not read it in the first century hearer's context, then we might totally misapply it in our context if we don't understand it. We don't have license to take the first century context out of it and put a 21st century context into it that's totally different. We can't take that license because we'll end up with a completely wrong interpretation of Scripture most of the time. So context is important. In, in this particular passage, with our theme being comfort, it's, it's very important because context doesn't only apply to the passage, it applies all the way down to the meaning of the Hebrew word. Because if you go to a Hebrew dictionary and look up a word, it may have four or five definitions in it. Well, the pastoral practice over the years has been pick the one that best fits your preaching narrative. And that's a terrible exegetical or expositional practice because we don't, we don't have that license. Hebrew is very contextual in that based on its usage, the words around it and the context of the passage, it means one specific thing. And in this passage... There's a couple of different words used for comfort. One is a noun that means to be at ease, to be out of any stress. And then the verb that we'll see in here as it applies to every time it mentions instruction, the verb for comfort here means to strengthen greatly. It's, it's, it comes from the Latin word confortus is what our Anglo word comfort comes from. And so it means to strengthen greatly. So it's not just to give us ease and rest, but it's to give us strength. And that's the context of the psalmist here. So I hope you're, I hope you're watching Catalyst Online. There's a lot of good things on there. And they're short series, three to four weeks, usually about 30 to 40 minutes in length. So you can really get some good study in watching those. In order to, to understand these things, you think, well, how can I... I just read over the scripture. How would I know all that? Well, you'd need to get some tools. You know, every job is made easier and more successful by tips and tricks and the right tools. Have you ever been working on a project and you need a tool you don't have and you have to run to the Home Depot 35 times? Anybody else do that besides me? Yeah. And you probably only use that tool once, but you've got to have it for this one. And so you need some tools. The two tools that will help you best, and they're really inexpensive, probably pick them up for 20 bucks or less at, on Amazon, 
are a Greek Hebrew dictionary and a Greek Hebrew lexicon. The dictionary tells you, of course, the definition of the word. The lexicon tells you the exact usage of it in the context of the verse. And if you have those two things, you can read through the scriptures and do some really deep study and understand it in context so you won't misapply the word. And you can get those very, very inexpensively. Some of the best stuff out there that's the most well-organized, it's about that thick because it has a lot of words in it, but it's written by a guy named Spiros Zodiates. Now you think, where's he from? Chattanooga. He's of Greek lineage and he goes to K. Arthur's church. But he's written some of the best complete word studies of the Old and New Testament as well as Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. So uh, check those out. You can get them on Amazon. You can uh, get them at Christian bookstores and uh, about anywhere those books are sold. So comfort means a place of ease and to be strengthened. It's easy to pick up the themes as you read through these eight short verses uh, because they're repeated over and over. The word comfort's repeated, the word statutes, precepts, instruction, judgment, uh, and then lastly is obedience. And, and so as we walk through this theme, I'm going to pull out two points, and then the author sort of takes a little uh, bypass in the middle of the passage and, and goes kind of personal and uh, that's not really a third point, but I will address it. So the first point is going to be that the word brings comfort. The word brings comfort. This is the only stanza in the book of Psalms where the word Torah is used three times. So when it's used three times, more so than any other stanza in this Psalms 119, certainly, it means that the Torah, the law, the word of God to the Hebrew is really, really central to this passage. So When you read through it, you know and you see very quickly what brings the psalmist comfort. Look back at those first two verses in 49 and 50. Remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. Now, this, this, these first two verses really start out as sort of a prayer psalm. He's talking to God very personally, very intimately, and he's saying, God, remember your word. Now, this, this word is not a word capitalized W. It just means that he's had a conversation with the Lord in the past, and he is asking, and he asking the Lord, remember when we talked last time? It brought me great hope. And so this is an encouragement. He's showing back to the Lord the encouragement from his conversation with the Lord, and that brings him great comfort. He says, I have, <clears throat> you have given me hope through our conversations. Then verse 50, he says, this is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. Again, this is that song prayer uh, passage. And he says, your promises, all the things, Lord, that you've promised your people over all of these many centuries. And they, the Hebrew people had to memorize the Torah. That was part of their discipline. Still to this day, the Orthodox Jews memorized the first five books of the Bible. Now, Think how long some of those are and understand what discipline that takes. But he said, Lord, your promises in the past have given me comfort in my affliction. Then, so the, the word brings comfort. God's voice, God's conversation with a man's heart brings comfort. Also, the word of God, as it says in the lower passages, brings comfort. Because everywhere you see the word instruction, 
in this passage, which is three times, is the word Torah. He's specifically talking about God's laws and God's decrees. So time and time again, he says, your instruction brings me comfort. But then in verse 51 through 53 is where he takes a little side trip into his emotions. Specifically, his anger or his ire toward his enemies. Let's read those three again. This is not really part of the key theme. However, it still fits within comfort. But he goes there, so it has something to teach us. 51, he says, The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. Lord, I remember your judgments from long ago and find comfort. Rage seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. Now, here's, here's what I took out of this. He's having a little flesh-spirit monologue here. He, he jumps out of this real intimate conversation with God into a little flesh which he spiritualizes. Watch. Verse 51. Here's Daryl Wright's translation, paraphrase. The flesh. These arrogant jerks really tick me off. Then he spiritualizes. But I'm not letting them turn away. Turn me away from your word. Now he's hearkening back to Job because Job said, in the midst of his trials, Job said, no matter what you bring on, I'm not going to turn from your path. So the psalmist sort of repeats that back. Then verse 52, the judgments here is the word mishpat, where it's a decree or a judgment. It has a courtroom context. And he says, Lord, I remember how you destroyed them in the past. And that makes me feel better that you'll do it again. Remembering his enemies. Lord, your anger. My anger burns against these guys. But, Lord, I remember. I remember how you got them. And, Lord, I, I, I'm just, it gives me great comfort to know that you'll do it again. So he, he walks from this flesh spirit. And, again, in verse 53, rage seizes me. That's pretty intense language. Because of the wicked who rejects your instruction. Here's the fleshly part of his statement. Those wicked soul, those wicked guys set my soul on fire. It just brings out the rage in me. And then he spiritualizes it. But it's because they reject your instruction, not because they tick me off. You see this flesh spirit thing going on with the psalmist? So he takes a, he gives praise to the Lord. Then he has a little moment here where he's remembering a lot of his adversaries and what they've done to him and they just make him real mad but he tries to keep it in the spiritual context and then he moves back into his discussion with the Lord. But since this is in here, what can we glean from this little departure of these three verses that it shows here? What can make a difference for us? First thing, that everyone we read about in the scripture is real and human. They have frailties, just like you and I have. The worst thing we can do is read the scriptures, when we read the scriptures, is think that the Bible characters were special in some way that's not attainable in our lives. Nothing could be further from the truth. The psalmist from Adam, the psalmist all the way to Revelation, people just like us, a lot of weaknesses, a lot of sin, but a lot of hope in Christ. We would tend to say, well, yeah, I know Peter was able to do that, but. Well, I know Paul said that, but. I know David was able to do that, but. 
Listen, Peter was an impulsive loudmouth who looked for something to say when there was nothing to say and usually said it. He was bold, brash, coward at times, but was also the one that preached at Pentecost. We should take comfort in that. Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, legalistic, mean-spirited, persecutor of the church, but became the missionary who took the gospel to the known world. We should take comfort in that. David, king, yes, but adulterer, murderer, about the worst of the worst of sinners, but yet a man after God's own heart. We should take comfort from that. That's the first thing we know and glean from the scripture. The only thing special about any of the characters of God's word is God's word in those characters. It's the only thing that makes them special. Apart from God, they're the worst of the worst. With God, they change the world. John 15, 5 sort of speaks to this. The exact statement can be made of you and I regarding these type of character traits. Apart from God, we can do nothing, John 15, 5. Absolutely nothing, Jesus says. But if you abide in me and I in you, we can work and make things happen. Philippians 4.13, you all know that. With God, all things are possible. So it's the God in us that makes us usable for the kingdom's sake. It's what made these Old Testament characters useful for the kingdom's sake. Secondly, we can glean that vengeance toward our enemies is God's job. If we allow ourselves to focus on those who wrong us, and carry anger in our heart, bitterness, resentment towards them, it's a sin. Because we're not to supplant God's role. Not in our lives or in the world. Anger, bitterness, revenge. The only time those emotions are not sin for me is when God has those sins in his word. Because or has those emotions, not sins. Has those emotions in his word because God's emotions are perfect. Mine and yours are not. The Bible says anger, but sin not. Be angry, but sin not. I haven't found that yet. I'm still searching, and I know in him I can. Because all his emotions are perfect, mine emotions are never perfect, here's what our responsibility is toward our enemies. Number one, pray for them. Number two, forgive them. Number three, as much as it depends on me or you, reconcile with them, all for the gospel's sake. John 16, 11 says, and about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, we don't have to worry about judging others or getting vengeance because it's already happened. Satan has already been judged. In Romans 12, 19 and 20, this will speak to us specifically. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But, in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him some, something to drink, for in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So we can glean that we need to leave the vengeance job up to God because he's sovereign and perfect in it. But that's the little bypass the psalmist take. Now, Back to our regularly scheduled program. 
God's word, his promise, all his declarations in whatever form bring consolation and strengthen us. They only bring ease in our lives to the extent we trust in him. We don't find this comfort in ourselves. We only find it as we trust God to handle these things. How much so? The psalmist says that, that these are the theme in his life. In verse 54, your statutes are the theme of my song during my earthly life. The theme of my song. If you examine your response to the thing the psalmist was dealing with in the previous three passages with enemies, what would people hear as the theme when listening to your life song? Would it be his comfort, his word? Or would it be your anger, your bitterness, your resentment, your lack of forgiveness? Just a thought. As good church folks, we come to church regularly, and then if we're better church folks, we stay for Sunday school. And if we're even better church folks, we study our lesson before we come to Sunday school. But if we're the best church folks and you do all these church things, you will still find no comfort apart from point number two. Obedience brings comfort. You see, we can be Bible scholars. We can be Bible trivia experts. We can have a 50-year Sunday school pen and still not have peace or comfort if we don't come to the place of responding to what we know and obeying the edicts and the commandments of the law and the spirit speaking within us. Obedience is absolutely critical. Most church folks can quote John 8.32. I'll show you. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But most church folks can't quote John 8.31. Because this is, what, this is what opens up the world of 8.32, knowing the truth and truth setting you free. But in John 8.31, here's the predication of it. Here's what it's all predicated on. It all hinges on this. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What is that speaking of? Obedience. Continuing in God's word. Living it out. Not just knowing it, but putting feet to it. That's what opens up the freedom. Not just knowing it. You can't cut 32 away from the tether of 31. You have to be continuing in the word. You have to be obedient to the word. Know, the word know in this verse means to understand. So you know why obedience is key in this passage? Look at 1 John 2, 3 through 6. I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. John says in his first short letter of three, he says, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands, obedience. The one who says I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands, isn't obedient to his word, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. You know what discipleship is? Learning to live and love and walk as Jesus did. And teaching others to do the same. Obedience to the word opens up our freedom. Henry Blackaby, in his life-changing, for me, study, and for many others I know, experiencing God, said the only part of God we know 
is the part we obey. Until you've obeyed the word, you don't truly know the word. The word know connotes intimacy of knowing a person, not just the text of his letters. The only part of God we know is the part we obey. So very quickly, let's make this transition from the word brings comfort, obedience brings comfort. Now let's move it into our context being in the New Testament. Everything the psalmist has said gives comfort, gives him comfort. Consolation, ease, and strength was the law. Everywhere you see the word instruction, in the Hebrew, the word is Torah. But we know that the law has no power for us in the new covenant other than to show us how bad we are and how desperate we desperate a need we have for a savior. The law couldn't keep us because we can't keep it. And so this obedience comes into real play in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. As people of the New Covenant under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the law brought death, not encouragement. Only through Christ does the law become beautiful again. Because what did he say? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Christ brings beauty. As people of the New Covenant, this is how we should understand the transfer from the written word to the living word in the New Testament, the new covenant of the blood of Christ that we live under. Romans 8, 1 through 3, verse 1, he's, Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's conditional. You have to be in Christ Jesus, which is a popular phrase with Paul in his writings. Number in second verse, he said, For the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit of Christ has set us free from what the law held us in, sin and death. And then in verse 3, it goes on to say, For what the law could not do, because it brought death and we couldn't keep it, what the law could not do, God did. He sent his only son in flesh like ours, under sin's domain, and as a sin offering, in order to fulfill the requirements of the law in the Old Testament for those of us who no longer walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. There's a transfer from law to Jesus, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It puts it from the Old Testament context into our context, and we are no longer under the condemnation that this psalmist was under the law or for those now who don't have Christ are still under the law. It was a great freedom. Jeremiah prophesied this incredible transfer in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, the Lord's declaration. I will, be, I will put, listen, I will put my teaching within them and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least 
to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. He's telling the Hebrew people there is coming a day when your covenant will be transferred from the law to the living one who will now not only dwell in the Lord's house in the temple, but will dwell within all of them. Now the good news is that we get to take part in this as well because in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that we as the Gentiles, the ones who are not the Hebrews, have been grafted into the root. We are grafted into the beauty and the relationship with Christ Jesus. And by that grafting in, we get to take advantage of this transfer of covenant. And we can know the Lord. And he and his word live within us. That's the transfer from the Old Testament law where the psalmist lived to where we now live. Then as Jesus was leaving to return to his throne in heaven, John 14, 15, and 16, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you. Some translations use comforter here. So Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to return to my throne in heaven, but when I do, I'm going to send another one like me, he says, of like kind to you, and he will be there with you forever. John 15, 26, when the counselor or the comforter comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. What does that say about the Holy Spirit of God? He is not the celebrity in our worship. He is only to lift up Christ in our worship. His job is to teach us about Christ Jesus, God the Son. Not to draw attention to himself, but to lift up Jesus because Jesus is our salvation. He is the way, the only way to heaven. He is the truth that we can stand on because it's absolute. He is the life that brings us eternity. John 14, 6. And the Holy Spirit is going to lift up Jesus so that we can see him. The word there for comforter or counselor is paraclete. It literally means the one who comes to walk alongside of. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's in us, walking alongside of us. And, and in other scriptures, Jesus said, it's for your benefit that I go away and send the other like me. Why does he say that? Because the supernatural power of the Spirit in us is more great and powerful than the supernatural power of the Christ walking with us. Now, not only did they had they had the presence of Christ with them, these 12 guys for three years, they had the presence of Christ with them in human form, flesh, as Romans 8 said, came in flesh like ours. But when he went, he sent another like him, his spirit that lives in us. And now his spirit goes everywhere and can be proclaimed through his people everywhere. So it was to our benefit, the world's benefit, the kingdom's benefit, that he go away and send the Holy Spirit. He is our constant comforter and guide. If the law in its weakness could give comfort to the psalmist before Christ came, think of the comfort we have access to through the Spirit of Christ who lives in us. God's Word gives us access to that comfort. 
Obedience gives us the ability to receive that comfort. Apart from obedience, comfort's there, but we can't partake of it. We can read about it, we can tell stories about it, but we can't have it until we obey the word that tells us about it. So the word brings comfort, obedience brings comfort. one who has done everything for our salvation, the one who is God, who left heaven to come to earth in flesh like ours as an offering for our sin, who died and was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures, and who is now forever the one who cries out to a holy God on our behalf. He is our comfort. He is our salvation. The one that the scriptures speak of that has the only name given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. Christ said it's to our benefit, it means he was giving us power. Garrison Keeler of Prairie Home Companion fame said, the gospel is meant to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. Well, I'm about to do both. Because I want to share the gospel as simply and as quickly as I know how. So I want to prove this statement true. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly alive in you, you'll get great comfort from it. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ are only words to you, then I pray for great affliction to the point that you were convicted to walk down front when we start an invitation in just a moment and tell one of our leaders across the front that you need to know how to be saved and they'll walk you through the word of God bring comfort here it is there's two parts to the gospel there's God's part our part we do really good at God's part because we don't have to do anything he's already done it all there's really four declarative statements in the book of Mark that's God's part of the gospel one there is a kingdom of God two there is a king his name's Jesus three that king died on our behalf and four he was resurrected in order to purchase us a place in heaven that we might be resurrected as well that's God's part, done deal. We all know that God, Christ fully paid for our salvation on the cross and that God did everything necessary to accomplish our salvation. But that doesn't alleviate our part. Here's three responses that are, the scriptures say are required from us that allow us to receive what God has already done. One, you have to believe. Believe is a pregnant term in the Greek. It means to believe in, trust in, rely on, and commit to. It don't mean just to know or understand. I know that not only from the definition of the word, but also from the scriptures. When Jesus was casting out the demons into the swine, they proclaimed him was one of the first ones to proclaim who he was. They knew he was the son of God. And they proclaimed it. They confessed it with their mouths. The demons did, but they were not saved. They knew God's part. They had never done their part. It was still a mystery. But we have to believe. Believe in, trust in, rely on, commit to. We also have to repent of our sins. We have to turn away from our sin. Repent, no repentance, no salvation, the scriptures teach. And repent means to turn away and don't walk that way anymore. Not just to try to avoid, but to run from it. 
until Christ came, we did not have the power to do that, but we do now. Not in perfection because we carry this flesh around, but in truth, we can turn away and repent of our sins. We must believe, we must repent. And three, we must follow Jesus. Christ makes that clear throughout his teaching in the kingdom gospel and the gospel of Mark. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15 when he breaks the gospel down. We must follow Jesus. We can't accept him as Savior and deny him as Lord. That would be tearing him apart. You can't do that. It's two sides of the same coin. It's one person. It's one gift. If he is Lord, if he is Savior, he is Lord. We must believe in commit to, rely on, trust in. We must repent of our sin and we must follow Jesus. That's why discipleship is so dear in my heart and why I have such a passion for it because it shows that we are in Christ. What did James say in chapter two of his short book? He said, show me your faith by without works. I'll show you my faith by my works because faith without works is dead. He said, will that kind of faith save you? The answer is no. He doesn't say that you must have works in order to be saved. He's just saying that a lack of work and evidence in your life is pretty good proof you're not. Works go along with salvation. They don't bring you to salvation, but they're evidence of it. So there's God's part, our part. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it this way. It is by grace you are saved, God's part, through faith, our part. Both of them are a gift of God, not from ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there's God's part, our part. This is the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus. The Bible says that God has done his part. Now it's up to all who hear the good news to do their part. I'm going to ask the band to come up and, and we're going to enter into a time of invitation. I'm going to ask uh, you to stand for a couple of reasons. One, you've been sitting for a while now. And two, if there are some who were afflicted by the gospel, convicted by the Holy Spirit of your need for salvation, it's easier to move forward.